0: Welcome back to Undercover. My name is Vidita Sharma
1: and I'm the producer of this episode. And I'm co-presenter Marin Garay. Welcome to the second episode of Undercover. In this episode, we're talking contraception, football, music, and life after lockdown.
0: It's a problem as old as time how not to get pregnant a problem that had no solution until the 1960s when the pill changed everything for women but that was the last millennium why hasn't there been a male pill in the six decades since
1: all this time the only birth control option for men has been the condom but that could soon change in late march the university of minnesota announced its male birth control pill had passed mice trials and could be ready to be tested on humans as early as the end of this year.
0: So, what does that mean?
2: Georgie Garrel has been asking the big question. In February 1961, the oral contraceptive pill was made available to Australian women. For the first time, women had control over their fertility. Over 60 years later, vulva owners have many different options for hormonal birth control including the pill, the shot, the rod, the implant and the ring. So why is it that over half a century later there are no birth control options for men other than condoms or a vasectomy? Is the science there? Is it because of social and cultural reasons? And what do the latest breakthroughs in the University of Minnesota mice trials mean for male birth control? It is important to note that this conversation mainly references heterosexual relationships and cisgender people. But we acknowledge everyone's experience of sex and relationships is different and that an individual's genitals do not determine their gender identity. I spoke to Senior Lecturer of Sexual Health and Sexology at the University of Sydney and Director of Sex Life Therapy, Dr Christopher Fox.
3: Women have always been made responsible for fertility and reproduction. And so in some ways it's the continuation of women are responsible. But when you look at the advent of the pill, it was one of the first, first things that was for women. Yet in that process, again, women were being made responsible for control of fertility. Sex for women or women and sexuality has often been shamed and, and sinned throughout you know, Western European history. And when you bring all of that together, We continue that in ways such as, women are responsible for birth control. You don't want to get pregnant. It's shameful to get pregnant, but what about the penis that made you pregnant? Yes. Why isn't that being shamed?
2: So what about that penis? Why is the topic of birth control and safe sex often considered almost entirely the woman's responsibility.
3: Women are being made responsible for birth control because we live in a society that's patriarchal and women are forced to be responsible for birth control. So all the options are for women so they can take control of the process.
2: In late March this year, the University of Minnesota released results for a mice trial conducted for their non-hormonal male birth control pill, which reported 99% safety and efficacy. A huge breakthrough. So would men use it? Dr Fox was slightly sceptical.
3: I honestly would like to say yes. I'd like to think that we now live in a society where men wear penis owners would be more prepared to take control. Yet we also still live in a society where men dominate women and therefore would it have the uptake that it would necessarily require? I don't know.
2: When the findings of the research was released, There was a lot of hype online and on social media, especially in feminist and progressive circles. Researchers a part of the study have said that human trials should begin by the end of this year, which would be the closest we would have ever been to having an approved male contraceptive pill.
3: I think there's hype every time the topic comes up. Are we gonna move to human trials before the end of the year? I think that's a bit early to predict given that the trials are, are so new. Because when you're doing drug testing, you know, it, it's actually quite a lengthy process. And so they're not possibly going to short that, but it depends on how well the, that that testing process has been into whether they'd go to, to, to trials by the end, human trials by the end of the year. But I don't think so.
2: Part of the reason there are no male contraceptive options is due to a lack of perceived interest and thus funding. Dr Fox explained to me that creating a new medication is expensive and pharmaceutical companies need to be sure that there is money in what they're creating. So what needs to change in order to make men care about reproductive health and birth control? Dr Fox thinks that this is a part of a bigger issue surrounding power and patriarchy.
3: It's a change in society for gender relations and the question becomes, why do we still live in a society where the pay disparity is still significantly different? There are still glass ceilings for women that, you know, women still carry the burden of child that women still carry the burden of responsibility for, for fertility. I think it's all reflective of, of that broader stuff about the, the gender narratives that, that we continue to perpetrate. Um, you know, and, and really it's, it's the gender narratives perpetrated for things like heteronormativity where, you know, heterosexuality is, is privileged above everything else. But within that, you then get men privileging above women. And, you know, we have to start educating, promoting, maybe is a better word than educating men or penis owners to be responsible for fertility.
2: And how do you think we do that?
3: I think we just start having these conversations and for women to say, no, it's your responsibility.
2: In my reporting, I have found that there are more questions than answers when it comes to male contraception, especially in the wake of new research and possible human trials. It seems like we might just have to watch this space. Georgie Carroll for Undercover.
1: a powerful way of bringing people from all walks of life together. And that's exactly what one small Melbourne football club is doing.
0: The Krakatoas is a community football club affiliated with AFL Indonesia. It's encouraging Indonesians living in Australia to play Aussie rules football.
1: From their involvement with the club, more Indonesian players are playing AFL at a competitive level in Australia. They're also developing the game in Indonesia.
0: A reporter, Kendra Jo, spoke to two women who took up AFL football through the Krakatoas Football Club. They say the game is strengthening the connection between Indonesia
4: and Australia. This is Yeni, a final year PhD student from Monash University who travelled to Melbourne from Indonesia to complete her studies.
5: Well, if you want to be Super exact. I'm from Central Java. So um, I think Anna is also from Central Java, but um, I'm from a different part of Central Java.
4: Yeni says she has always been into sport. Growing up in Indonesia, her father was a massive soccer fan and the main reason why she was also hooked on the game. However, when she arrived in Australia, she soon discovered a new game, one that appeared to be more popular with Australians. Soccer
5: is, uh, I remember soccer was not as popular as AFL um, footy. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll give
4: it a try. And she certainly did. Through the Krakatoas Football Club in Melbourne, Yeni went to watch her very first AFL game.
5: The are very um, welcoming for, you know, Indonesians who um, got to Melbourne and they want to get a taste of what Australian footy looks like. Um, and uh, it used to be pretty easy to organise tickets. So, um, you know, we got together, uh, went to the Fremantle North Melbourne game and I was like, it, no idea what's going on, but it looks like fun. And I just loved how passionate fans are and um, how big um, football is here. And yeah, I think um, since then, I think I started following footy more closely.
4: After attending a few training sessions with the Krakatoa's Football Club, Yeni not only played her first game of AFL footy, but went on to play regularly and now plays for her university football team, the Monash Blues.
5: It's really fun. I had lots and lots of fun, like every week. It's just, it's just, a, different, um, it's just a different challenge, uh, It's different memory. But I think um, getting started, playing my first um, game was, I think, uh, one of the most memorable moments um, in my
4: um, footy journey. The Krakatoa's Football Club has not only encouraged the involvement of more Indonesian expats like Yeni to participate in AFL whilst in Australia, but has also influenced the growing participation of the game in Indonesia. One individual in particular has played an integral part of bringing the game to her community and now has become the first Indonesian female accredited AFL coach.
6: My name is Anna Surjanto, you can call me Anna. I am living in Central Java in Indonesia right now. I actually lived in Melbourne for two years for my uh, master program from 2016 until 2018. And now I'm teaching at one of the university in Central Java in Salatiga City. Besides teaching, I'm running a footy coaching clinic <laughs> in Central
4: Java. With the desire to bring her experience from living in Australia back to her community in Indonesia, Annie introduced a football and coaching clinic in central Java, a training program designed to teach women and girls about AFL football, whilst also introducing them to Australian culture. Since then, the clinic has attracted hundreds of women to the game.
6: When I see the girls, uh, it becomes the motivation for me, uh, their that- I believe, oh, uh, FL is also can bring their uh, understanding of culture and also can bring their spirit about, uh, you know, understanding uh, other country, you know, uh, Australia as neighbor. Yeah, so uh, this, is, this is the first motivation why I still uh, running for the clinic.
4: Anna's coaching clinic is also playing a pivotal role in celebrating and connecting different cultures to the game.
6: Uh, I think I am also unique because uh, as my identity uh, from the way I dress, I wear hijab. Uh, so it means also that to remind us that sport is for
4: everyone else. And- Anna's passion and innovation to train and coach women's football in Indonesia is about empowering women from all walks of life, culture and religion to participate in team sport at a high level. It is also a grassroots example of an initiative contributing to the strengthening bilateral relationship between Australia and Indonesia. Through sport, individuals and nations can grow to better understand each other and share the joys of competition.
6: In this case, Indonesia is the close neighbor, but we are a different culture. Uh, the Indonesian majority are Muslim, and then, uh, but also at the sometimes when we get to know each other, when we learn about Australia and Indonesia, so like we have a uh, same uh, spirit to know each other. So this is really amazing way. I believe that, of course, uh, it, it in this case, a sport, yeah, can bring social change,
4: Kendra Jewell, Undercover.
1: The last two years of COVID lockdowns in Melbourne have been a challenge for everyone, affecting us all in different ways. One area
0: that was hit pretty hard was the music industry. Clubs shut, venues weren't able to host shows, and it left artists in a pretty fragile space.
1: Harry Connell caught up with one Melbourne musician to find out how he got through the limitations of lockdown with no gigs and no audiences.
7: It definitely came as a massive uh, surprise and a, and a hindrance, to say the least. There was a lot of cancelled gigs um, straight off the bat. And then, obviously, as things progressed with COVID and we went in and out of lockdowns and promoters were sort of trying to get back on the horse as quickly as possible. And then we would go back into lockdown. So I would get bookings and then they'd get rescheduled or canceled. And it would just be like continuous rescheduling.
8: This is Will Howard, better known as Suki, but also known as Sniper One and DJ Huntsman. Suki has been producing music for over a decade and has had releases with huge labels, such as London's Holding Hands Records and Manchester's Dan Discs. He's also the co-founder of his own label, Dolphin Flips. I sat down with him to discuss the impact the arduous lockdowns had on the industry. So talk to me about lockdown. What was it like for you? You weren't able to obviously be in a club atmosphere or play any shows, but were you still able to get things done? Were you able to work on new music or did you find yourself struggling maybe with a bit of demotivation, uh, writer's block, things like that?
7: As things lingered a bit more, I started to get, you know, less motivated because gigs weren't happening. I didn't have anything to look forward to. I didn't know what the future of the industry was even going to be like. Like COVID sort of showed us, you know, the fragility of it all and how quickly it can just get taken away. So, you know, this is something that I've been doing for, you know, 10, 11 years now. So to have that all taken away from me was the, the I guess, like the, the reality of that, you know, started to kick in after a little while and, you know, definitely brought on a lot of anxiety and stress and demotivation and, and, and writer's block, like you say, like I, I was really struggling to make music. So yeah, I think it was just like, you know, started off really positive and I got a lot done. Um, I wrote that rhythm export EP um, during that first little period. So, you know, I'm glad that I was able to have something to show for that time, but I think it's, yeah, it's taught me to just like take it as it comes, but still try to achieve my goals.
8: Were you receiving any government pay at this time? I understand it was a very difficult time for you as an artist, not being able to go out and do what you do on a weekly basis. What was the government support like? And were you satisfied with how things were handled in that regard?
7: Yeah, honestly, I was super impressed with the with the government support um, for artists specifically and someone in, in my position. Like, I know there was a lot of um, kickback about the way that the government handled the the funding and all that sort of stuff, but you know, I, I definitely cannot complain. Like I was, I was getting grants like, uh, artists and, and music grants from the government. Um, there was one through support act, you know, which gave me a couple thousand, you know, towards, towards rent. And like, um, yeah, there was a whole lot of different initiatives, which I tapped into, which enabled me to, uh, I guess like keep earning an income, even though I was out of work. However, it was when the funding got cut and I still wasn't able to work, which is when things got a little bit tricky um, because they sort of cut it and then nightlife still wasn't quite back, so I wasn't getting gigs. And at that point, right before COVID, I was just doing music full time. Um, so that was my only source of income. So you know, I had, yeah, as I say, I had good funding from the government and that was all great but then when it got cut I sort of had to um kick back into gear and now things are sort of slowly coming back but I'm definitely not in a position now to be doing music full-time um so I work a day job now which is which has been good because it's it sort of pulled me out of that um mentality of trying to do too much music wise so yeah it was yeah no complaints there really it was it was great to see that um I was in a position to be supported financially in that way.
8: Coming out the other side of the lockdown, Suki's looking forward to playing both local and international shows, as well as releasing new music in the near future.
7: Um, I've sort of been, yeah, trying not to jump into things too quickly. Like I, I would love to say that I've got EPs locked in and whatnot, but I don't because I'm, I'm just trying to work on all my demos at the moment and because I've got all these projects now, I'm just trying to put together as many tracks as I can. Like I've got a, a lot of labels asking for for demos and stuff, but I am just trying to take it easy and, you know, make sure that I'm happy with the work first before I start, you know, giving it to other people or showing other people. So um, I'm really happy with where the music is going at the moment. I've got, yeah, I've got heaps and heaps of tracks pretty much ready to go. So um, yeah, should be plenty of stuff coming from me later in the year um and gigs wise yeah definitely just keep an eye out on social media and stuff that's probably where i'll where i'll announce them harry connell
8: undercover
0: thanks for listening to this episode of the undercover podcast a big thanks to our reporters georgie carroll kendra jewel and harry connell thank you for bringing these interesting stories to the world also, a huge thank you to our executive producers, Bernadette and Tito. We couldn't have done it without you.
1: Can we here? Yes, have a pause for a while. Yeah, I like this tag team. I know, right?
0: Yeah I didn't know how it would go but I think uh, yeah two presenters worked really well for us. I reckon we nailed it. Yeah I think we did. (laughs) Didn't we? (laughs) Well done well done.